We are in Luke chapter 9. If you go there, please. Luke chapter 9. Not going to cover a lot of ground today because there are burgers to be had and I don't want you all scowling at me. Look in your burgers. So it's Luke chapter 9, message number 28 in the never-ending journey through Luke. Let's read from verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying, this is something Luke does more than any other gospel writers. As you read Luke over and over again, you get this as Jesus was praying, as he was praying, when he was praying. Yet you'll get that over and over again that the other gospel writers don't put in as much. He was praying in private and his disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. That's weird, isn't it? And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Of God, and we'll stop there and hopefully cover those verses this morning. The easier question that Jesus asks here is for his disciples to give the opinions of others. It's always easier if you're if you're asked what what do people think about this. We bit later they're going to be asked more directly what they think. But for now, he says to them, "Who do the crowds say that I am? What's the word on the street? What are people saying about me?" And this is another theme that runs throughout Luke and will continue to run right to the end of Luke. This issue of who is Jesus. In chapter 4, he is in, is it Capernaum or is it Nazareth? I can't quite remember offhand. But he's, he's at the synagogue and he speaks these gracious words. And they, they say, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, the question is, the query is, who is he? He's sort of not quite what we expect. And then in in Luke 7, John the Baptist sends a message to him saying, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? In Luke 8, in the boat after he's calmed the storm, the disciples say, who is this who commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. And then at the start of chapter 9, we saw it last week when Herod's in a bit of a flap about who Jesus is. And somebody suggests it might be John the Baptist back from the dead. Herod says, I beheaded John. Who then is this? You get this theme throughout Luke's gospel. Who is this that we're talking about? And the response of the crowds indicate that they realize he is more than just a good rabbi. 
a good local village teacher? Because the, the reply that the, the disciples give on behalf of the crowds is the same as the one that was given to Herod. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others that one of the prophets has come back to life. And that gives a bit of insight into what the people think about Jesus. And as an aside, some people, you know, there still, I think, is a perception out there in culture that, that Jesus is just a real nice guy, you know, a bit soft around the edges and, and, and real pleasant. If, if you're being compared to John the Baptist and Elijah, those are pretty strong figures. Those are guys who got in the faces of kings at the, the risk of their own lives and called those kings out on their sin. Those are the guys who called God's people back to faithfulness and back to worship. Right? These, are, these, these are not soft sort of fellas. And Jesus is being compared to them. He is likewise, and I'm not making some sort of case for, for super masculinity or something. I'm just making the point. Jesus was fearless about getting in the face of authority and saying, the way you're living is wrong. And he was fearless about calling God's people back to faithfulness to God. But then the question becomes a bit more pointed at the disciples themselves. Who do you say that I am? And this is the essential question at the heart of the gospel. Who is Jesus? And Peter's response is that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus does a really weird thing. He immediately says, don't tell anyone. Surely the whole, I've come to proclaim the kingdom of God and all of this. And, and when this is the first time Peter or anyone in, in the gospel of Luke has declared that he is the Messiah. And Jesus' instant response is, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And the reason that he doesn't want them to tell anybody, I think, is because the disciples do not understand what it means to be the Messiah. Nobody in the first century expected the Messiah to heal people. And Jesus was healing people. Nobody expected the Messiah to walk on water or raise the dead. And this is the stuff that Jesus was doing. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Meshech and it means an anointed king. And what they wanted was a king in the line of David who would come and deliver them from foreign oppression. And they did not link Messiah coming and delivering them with God's promise to, in the future, come and dwell among them. A promise God made in Ezekiel that he would himself come and shepherd his people. A promise in Malachi that, that God would return to his temple. They did not put the two together. And when they were wanting a Messiah to come and looking for a Messiah to come, it was to deliver them from foreign oppression, to deliver them from Rome, to set them free from their enemies. And because they had a misunderstanding of what Messiah meant, Jesus, I, I think Jesus with Peter here is basically saying, you're not wrong, but you don't fully understand. So just button it for a while. Because people will misunderstand, which is what happened in John, I think in chapter 6, where they tried to force Jesus to become their king. That's the sort of leader they wanted. And Jesus has to explain to them what he's going to do now. He's going to have to explain what Messiah means. 
and what he actually is about and who he actually is. The question, who am I? (laughs) That's the, the thing that he's trying to probe down into. Do you have a correct understanding of who Jesus is? Or are you projecting onto him what you want him to be? Which is what first century Jews would have been doing. Projecting onto the Messiah, the great deliverer who's going to set them free from Rome and set up a kingdom and the whole world is going to be ruled from Jerusalem. That's what they want and that had become then their expectation of Messiah. And Jesus is not going to fit in that box. He doesn't do boxes. Told a story at the wedding on Thursday about Aaron climbing into boxes and hiding on people and then jumping out at them whenever they arrived at the church. Jesus doesn't do boxes. You can't fit him in to to a category the way the Jewish people would have tried to do so. Whenever he stilled the storm, they were more terrified of him than the storm. Whenever he walked on water, they thought he was a ghost. They just haven't a clue right now who he actually is. And there are all sorts of ideas in culture about who Jesus is. And I think sometimes a lot of wrong ideas in the church about who Jesus is. I think we still project onto him who we want him to be in order to enhance our lives. This is who Jesus is because this will forward my sort of aims and goals. Some people think he's a wise teacher. Of course he was. A social justice warrior, a political revolutionary, a holy man, a prophet, a vegan. What football team does Jesus support? Does he support this team? When Alison prays, does he answer Alison's prayers? Or when Sterling prays, does he answer Sterling's prayers? And I often wonder whenever I see two football teams coming out in the pitch and I see players on each team quite sort of visibly, you know, their their arms out and their eyes closed and it's very clear they want to put their faith out there and let people see it across the world. But part of me, hopefully not irreverently, thinks of Jesus just like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, whose prayers am I going to answer today? You know, as these two brothers in Christ walk out side by side to do battle, am I going to answer Alison's prayers or am I going to answer Sterling's prayers? I don't know. But everybody has a Jesus. Everybody sort of projects onto Jesus what they want from him. And what we really need is the real Jesus to please stand up. We really need to understand from the scripture who he actually is. And he starts to explain to them that the Messiah has to suffer. Now, this is not what they were expecting. And again, I think this is part of the reason that Jesus is saying to Peter, just for a while, stick with me, listen to me, let me explain and open up things to you. Because it's the first time he's done this in Luke. Before you go around shouting from the rooftops that the Messiah has come and drawn a crowd of people for all the wrong reasons, you need to understand who I actually am and what I'm here for. And the Messiah in Jewish expectation, once Messiah comes, Messiah will go to Jerusalem, Messiah will destroy Roman rule and Messiah will set up his kingdom. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and he is going to face Roman rule, not to kill them, but to be killed by them. It's all backwards as far as the the, the Jewish understanding would have been. A crucified Messiah is, is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. The people who got crucified by Rome in the first century were runaway slaves 
and insurrectionists who were basically failed messiahs, wannabe messiahs. And whenever they rose up and tried to draw a crowd, Rome would just get them and kill them. Those were the people who got crucified. Messiahs don't walk on water. Nobody in the Old Testament, nobody in the first century were waiting for a Messiah to come and walk on water. But God calls the water and tells it what to do. Messiahs don't forgive sin. That was not expected of the Messiah. He's going to flatten Rome. He's not going to forgive sin. But Jesus comes and forgives sin. Jesus is doing God's stuff and he's trying to get them to understand, I am not just your perception of Messiah. Yes, I am Messiah, but I am also God among you. The long-awaited shepherd coming to shepherd his own flock. The long-awaited return of God to the temple. I am so much more than what you think I am or what you would project onto me. From the very start of his ministry, Jesus does God stuff. And that's what just rattles them so much that they cannot figure it out. So the question that Jesus has put out there is, who, who do you say that I am? But the question that he is really answering in his life and ministry is, what is God like? What is God actually like? When God comes among a people, what does it look like? And the thing that we need to understand in this passage as we move on through it is that if we have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is, then we will get discipleship all wrong. Because we're following a figment of our imagination rather than following Jesus as he reveals himself. So he turns now in the next verses to talk about discipleship. He said to them all, whoever wants, whoever wants, I love that. It's an invitation. Not coercion, it's not manipulation. Jesus is very gracious. If you don't want Jesus in your life, he will completely honor that for all eternity. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. He's just talked about his own suffering, his own death, correcting their understanding of Messiah. And now he is straightening out what a disciple is. Whoever wants to be my disciple, your, your Bible might say probably a bit more accurately, whoever wants to come after me or whoever wants to follow me. Uh, and what it literally means in, the, in that context was you would have had a rabbi and the rabbi was a teacher and the teacher had students or disciples and they literally walked behind the rabbi and went wherever he went and listened to him and learned from him. Whenever you read the same passage in Matthew, there's like a play on words there where, where Peter says a wee bit more. And then Peter rebukes Jesus for talking about suffering. And then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me. He says, get behind me, Satan. But get behind me is that call for Peter to, it's, it's like Jesus saying to Peter, you're out of line. You're not behaving like a disciple right now. You need to get back behind the rabbi. You need to get back into that place of following and being discipled instead of thinking just like a man. So dis discipleship is a, is a following behind. What is your position with regard to Jesus? Is he in front and you're following behind, which is the way it should be? Or are you in front running off after your own things and saying, Jesus, come on, <laughs> you know, keep up here. Help me out with this. And there's one or the other. 
We are called to be behind him, going where he goes. Where is Jesus going? Let's keep poking with the spirit of Caleb. Where is Jesus going in this town? Where does he want to go that he wants us to follow rather than where we want to go that we're trying to drag him along? We should be behind following Jesus out in front. And he, he gives some requirements of what it means to be a disciple and to follow him. He says, first of all, deny yourself. Now watch carefully. Deny yourself. I don't think it's so much deny yourself as in who you are, your gifts, your talents, your personality, your God-given character and uniqueness. There's never been one like you and there never will be another like you. You're made in the image of God. And I don't think Jesus means deny any of that. It's not so much deny yourself. The pause is important. It's not so much deny yourself. It is deny your self. Okay? So we're not denying your identity of who you are as a person and all the unique things that make you you. It's more than that. He says deny your self. Self. I am my biggest problem, <laughs> okay? myself. Paul will later, as we'll see, Paul talks about the flesh. That part of me that wants my way. That part of, of, of every human being that is driven by getting what we want and being in control and not caring about others. There is a self, a selfishness that is at war with what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus basically says something in you, your self, is at war with what it means to be a disciple. Modern society is obsessed with self. And I remember one time before giving you a stat, which has probably changed because this was actually nearly four years ago, three and a half. But anyway, according to 2018 figures, there would be 2,625,000,000 selfies sent on Snapchat today. Right, so just to make that a bit simpler, over two and a half billion selfies will be sent on Snapchat today. And if you were to get every one of those selfies and print them out on a six by four, like sort of standard photograph size, and, and get all those two and a half billion six befores and set them all down in a line side by side, it would reach to the moon. <laughs> That's one day. On one platform, the number of selfies. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't take selfies, but I'm just saying in culture, there, ha there is a very obvious obsession with self. And that's a very simple and sort of almost comical picture of it. But narcissism and a, an obsession with self and being in control and trampling over others is one of the greatest problems in the world today in leadership and also in the church. There was a report written recently about a leader of a church who had been ousted by his board because his leader, now this is America, don't be trying to second guess me, like, but it was a leader who'd been ousted by his board because of his leadership style and a 22-page report was written by an independent inquiry and the most common term used in the report about this guy was narcissist. Has to be in control, has to get his own way. Self, self, self. 
And the, the modern obsession with self is really detrimental to following Jesus. John Tyson says, the world wants to activate the worst version of you by making you selfish, by getting you to just surround yourself with all of the things you need and be the person you want to be. You know, you be the person you want to be and everybody around you then has to tiptoe around the person that you want to be. Whatever that is. And people then bring on themselves as they try to be the person they want to be and as they serve the God of self and selfishness, they make themselves so unhappy because they're carrying this unbearable burden that they've placed on themselves because the world around them has has cheered them on and championed them on. You be yourself and make everybody else bow the knee to yourself. And is it any wonder people are so unhappy? Paul later will write about self, um, but Paul uses the language of flesh, the flesh, which doesn't mean your, your, your body, your physicality, but it means that part of you that is not um, under the Spirit of God or guided by the Spirit of God. What do we do with this flesh thing? It's a whole different sermon. People talk about the war between the flesh and the Spirit. Well, Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But Paul's alive and he's writing letters and he's, so he's not physically dead. What was crucified? He goes on later in Galatians and says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the self, dead, with its passions and desires. I love that. And sometimes if, if, if we try to make excuse for sin, uh, I hope this doesn't sound harsh, but if, we, if, we try to, if, if, I, if I try to make an excuse for some sin and say, oh, that's my old flesh just rising up within me again, I always sort of try to direct myself back to this and say, no, no, hang on, my flesh is dead. I'm not making excuses. <laughs> the flesh is crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. The flesh, the self, the selfishness, the passions, the desires have been crucified and therefore should no longer dictate our behavior. I found out earlier that ancient knights, as in sort of shining armor and swords and horses and all of that, apparently whenever they were, you know, if they went on their their crusades and whatever and they stopped at, at monasteries and they hung out with monks and they drank beer that the monks made and some of them maybe stayed around and then had religious experiences and wanted to get baptized apparently when they were getting baptized they would hold their sword up out of the water as almost a way of saying you can have all of me god except my sword you're not getting that it's part of my identity and it's part of who i am and i'm holding it up out of the water And that's obviously very wrong. (laughs) If you're going down under the water, everything's going down. You're not going to hold out your your wallet, your bank account or your stuff or whatever and say, you can have everything, God, but not that. (laughs) Jesus wants it all. He wants the flesh to be crucified, the self to die if we're going to follow him. Don't come to Jesus and say, "You, you can forgive my sins, but don't ask me to end that relationship that I should not be in. You can come into my heart, Jesus, but there are some house rules. Don't touch my stuff. (laughs) Don't move anything. Don't make me hang out with people that I don't like. 
Don't keep me up late at night. <laughs> so deny yourself. And take up your cross. The cross, for many people wear a cross as an item of jewelry, and that's absolutely fine. The cross is important to us as people of faith, and there's, there's, there's absolutely nothing at all wrong with wearing a cross as an item of jewelry. In the first century, a Jew wouldn't have, <laughs> because the, the whole, everything surrounded with the cross was about shame and about cursing. And the primary meaning of this is, is, is Jesus basically saying, you need to go public with your faith, even if it means to the point of death. It is literal. The primary meaning is literal for these guys that Jesus was speaking to. And we can also apply it in a, in a sort of a metaphorical way as well. Not many of us here, probably none of us will ever have to face death because of our faith. But all around the world this morning, there are those who are. All right? And we need to remember that. But we will probably take on various different stigmas in culture because we choose to follow Jesus. People will think differently of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung by the Nazis a few days before the end of the war because he stood up to Hitler, said, whenever Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it's not glamorous and it's not that sort of nice and appealing, but that is the call to come and die. Take up your cross daily. And you won't get very far in a walk of discipleship if we do not deny, deny ourselves and daily take up the cross. It is um, no coincidence that in the Garden of Eden, the symbol for humanity's union with God and receiving of life from God was not a rock and it was not a river, it was a tree. <laughs> the cross was not an afterthought in the heart of God in Genesis 3 where he said, oh goodness, look what they've done. I better figure out a rescue plan. The cross was right there. There was a tree in the garden and if you came to that tree, you received life. The cross was in the heart of God even before sin entered the equation. And that's why many cathedrals, when you go into ancient church buildings and large you know, cathedrals and look at the layout of the, even the floor as you walk in, the layout of the floor is a cross. It's cruciform. And there's stuff all around the walls that as soon as people, you cannot go into the building and not encounter the cross and not see it and be provoked to think about it. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a, a theological idea. It's not just a historical event, although it is that, of course, <coughs> but it is a lifestyle that we are called to follow. And I wonder sometimes how many of the world's problems would be solved if, if we actually lived like this. Is it, you know, you can maybe chew on this, but is it a stretch to say that every problem has at its root somewhere in the background selfishness? Whether that's a relationship breakdown or whether it's a tyrant invading another country. At the, at the root cause of probably every issue, there is selfishness. There is someone who is not willing to deny themselves. The ancient sort of, well, not that ancient, I guess, a few hundred years ago, the, the Puritans, stern-looking boyos, um, what was the quote? 
somebody, somebody made up a comical sort of definition of a Puritan. Um, and the definition was basically someone who, who lives in constant fear that somebody somewhere might be having fun. <laughs> so I think that's a wee bit harsh, maybe. Um, but these Puritans, these, these guys that passionately followed Jesus and wrote big books and influenced the Reformation and the, the years before it and after it, they had a phrase where they would talk about the mortification of the flesh, which sounds like a Norwegian death metal band, but isn't. It's about putting to death. It's about taking seriously our sin and our selfishness. What we'll hear sometimes a wee bit in, in, in modern culture and around the church regarding sin is that somebody will say, oh, I'm struggling with... Well, stop struggling with it. Kill it. Because <laughs> if you're struggling with it, there's a good chance that you're, you know, you're struggling with it the way a cat struggles with a mouse and keeps it alive. You know, just keep it alive. Give it another bang, but keep it alive. We struggle with sin in a way that keeps it alive sometimes. And we think that because I've told my brother in Christ that I'm struggling with this, it's all right. You know, I can keep on doing it. No, kill it. Kill it. The mortification of the flesh. Kill sin before it kills you. And the third thing in that little verse there is follow me. Again, be the apprentice. It's not, you know, your, your rabbi, your teacher does not just communicate information to you that you then do an exam on and pass the exam and move on. No, you followed the rabbi, you lived with the rabbi, you listened to the rabbi, you learned from the rabbi, and you became like the rabbi. It was a long-term process. And this is what, it, what makes it worth it. Denying yourself, that's, that's hard. Taking up your cross, that's hard. Follow me, that's not easy, but that's a reward. We get to follow Jesus. We get to be close to him. We get to learn from him and become like him. If you want to save your life, Jesus says, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll save it. Basically, deny yourself and follow Jesus and you will live. You will be fully alive. Doesn't mean life will be easy. Definitely not. But you will be a true human being, restored in the image of God and fully alive. The other option is to deny Jesus and follow self. And that only leads to death. So in conclusion, the question, who do you say that I am? I think, and this is you know, a bit stingy, but I think there are an awful lot of people who call themselves Christians and think they are Christians, but do not follow Jesus. They've heard a little bit. They've projected onto him what they would like him to be and what football team's prayers they would like him to answer they follow the bits that they like. They kick out the bits that they don't like. There was an American president who literally took scissors to the Bible and cut out the bits that he didn't like and threw them in the bin and had a Bible that was all chopped up. I think there are a lot of people who are not following Jesus. They don't know who Jesus is. They've never taken the time to soak in the revelation of who he is long enough. And I'm not talking about people who struggle with things. Every one of us has battles. Every one of us has weaknesses. Every one of us has got things that, that come at us. I'm not talking about petty little issues, like whether or not somebody becomes a Christian and finds it hard to give up smoking. I don't care, and I don't think Jesus cares. All right? I'm talking about how we treat other people, how we live, how we use our resources, 
Those are the bigger issues. And if we are followers of Jesus, we should be denying ourselves, taking up the cross, following him, loving the world around us, giving ourselves sacrificially to other people. When someone says, I follow Jesus, but I just do whatever I like. You know, me and Jesus, we've got this thing, you know, and it's okay. I can do what I want. No, you're kidding yourself. Are you following the Jesus of the scriptures who has revealed himself primarily in the gospels and throughout the scriptures? And, and the, the answer is not really, you know, who do you say I am? It's not really a verbal answer. It's about how you live. It's, it's, it's answered. It's like the classic question you might say to someone, do you believe in God? And they say, yeah, because everybody does, <laughs> pretty much. And it, it means nothing. Do you follow Jesus is a much more pertinent thing. But the, but the answer is not just, oh, yes, I follow him. It, it is displayed in your life today, tomorrow, ongoing, whether or not, you're, whether or not you follow him and who you think he actually is. Because if you really think he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, constantly making intercession for us, if he is the lamb in the midst of the throne of Revelation 4 and 5, you'll have a good prayer life. And if you think he's just someone you go to when you're in a bit of a pickle, you'll have a pretty ropey prayer life. If you think, as Peter says, that he's the one who, who has the words of eternal life, then you will make time to feed your soul and your spirit on those words. But if he's just a wise teacher with a couple of nifty proverbs and a nice verse that you can put in a mug or a t-shirt, you'll not, you'll not do that. Who is he? Not just who you would say if you were all asked, but by your life, who is this Jesus? It is our lives that answer that question, not our words. We're done. Let's pray and let's worship.